0: And good morning, Gary.
1: Good evening, Jonathan. I'm back in Chicago. You're
0: back in Perth, and I've I've been doing a normal podcast for the first time in a week. (laughs) It's and you know it feels a lot longer. You know it really does. I was thinking of this this morning. We've got we've had a lot of wonderful guests on over the last sort of three or four weeks, I guess, and that's been terrific. But every time that we've done it, it doesn't feel like the normal podcast. And so I kind of feel like we haven't done this for several weeks, at least. So it is, it's, 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 it's just us again, you poor listeners. It's just us again.
1: I was at uh, a board meeting for the International Conscience of the Fantastic last weekend, which happened to coincide with the exact times we would normally record this. And The yeah. week before that, of course, was uh, was at um, Wiscon, which was a, a delightful, I, I hope people could pick up from the podcast, a delightful yeah. group of people who like each other
0: did you actually see much of wisconsin i mean i sometimes think about going and i have friends who you know sort of make all kinds of warm and fuzzy noises about going but it's not a convention i've ever really seriously thought about planning to go to
1: well for an international trip i uh, i i don't know that i would uh my my sense of wisconsin is uh to be honest uh, one of a little bit of guilt i mean Mm -hmm. I. uh, their programming i admire what they're doing ellen Clages was very articulate about the importance of the Tiptree awards yep and it's a short drive for me it's less than three hour drive a lot of friends that i never see anywhere else uh, are there and uh i end up going up and basically what happened to me uh this weekend we were only there for a day as a matter of fact mm-hmm. I was, farrah mendelson was i picked her up at the airport we drove to madison and um it's one of the questions that I think is interesting about going to a con and it's an argument I used to have with Charles about overplanning. I prefer not to book all the lunches and dinners in advance. Yeah. Because you find yourself surprised with who you're going to run across and sometimes people can't make plans. Um, so the first, within an hour after I got there, Carol Imstraler and her daughter, who is delightful and ethnobot mm-hmm. at the University of Wisconsin, uh, walked in. We joined them for dinner. Uh, ended up Uh, putting together a group of, let me see, I I think I probably told you this, Karen Fowler and Saladin Ahmed and uh, Chris Rowe for lunch. The next day had dinner Saturday night with, uh, with with Mary Rickard and her husband, Bill, who are, uh, we have a little tradition, which I'll tell you about at Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And then Fryman and, uh, and and Susie Charnas joined us. Our little tradition, which just started because this is the only place I think that Mary Rickard really goes. They live in, in rural Wisconsin. Was we discovered the first year that I met her, I guess, uh, that only a few blocks from the uh, from the hotel is Lake Mendota, which is one of the two lakes that surround the city of Madison, which mm-hmm. is on in this. And there's a little plaque uh, on the uh, bench overlooking Lake Mendota saying, "This is where Otis Redding crashed his plane and killed himself in 1967." <laughs> Yeah, so we have this Otis Reading pilgrimage every year, which is now our uh, our Wisconsin tradition
0: Wow, so how many you, how many of you make the pilgrimage to the to the lake?
1: First two years, it was just Mary and Bill and myself and this year Farrah came along with us
0: So it's a uh, next
1: year we're going to open it up to the public
0: <laughs> <laughs> You could sell tickets You probably could We could take t-shirts, it could be a mug I mean, It it's
1: could a- be a whole, we'd we, we have a whole Otis Redding festival it, um, and it turns out that everybody, it, it's one of those interesting things, no matter what's your taste in music, you seem to know who Otis Redding is. Everybody knows the one song. Well, at least the one song, yeah, which which takes on a certain ironic meaning when you're looking out over the water where he drowned himself.
0: <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, in, in fairness, not deliberately. I mean, when you say drowned well, himself, no. it makes it sound I as though, you know. And you're not actually sitting on the dock, so. Yeah, but, but you know, hey, nonetheless. And actually, I was surprised. I think he wrote "Respect," which I never had realized. It was only a while ago I realized that. Yeah, the
1: Aretha, right, the Aretha Because
0: the Aretha Franklin. Really yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yes, but um, and was there anything science fictionally interesting about Wisconsin, particularly? Um, I,
1: I did not go to any programming. This is the odd thing. As I say, I, mm-hmm. I go up there, ended up having uh, drinks and dinner and lunch with friends of mine, and uh, I was unfortunately uh, ignorant of. What went on at the program almost entirely because mm-hmm. I never got to it.
0: You are a useless convention correspondent. I'm, I'm
1: completely, i completely <laughs> a, a, a convention leech, I guess. Uh,
0: <laughs> did, you least, did you at least buy anybody a glass of wine? I mean, come on. Um, yeah, know, I think I. Probably okay, would say, well but, then, then you can probably you know, sort of give yourself a.
1: Probably don't people or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: Okay, I will. And during all this time, did you get any reading done, Gary? No, uh,
1: I was gonna. I was gonna mention that actually. Um, <laughs> I've gotten a, a bunch of books, and we've, we've we've talked about my complaints about what to read and what not. What's not available? But now I have a, a, a wealth of things to read for July and August, yeah. and none of them are short. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, there is, uh, but I, you know, one thought, and I, I know you've got a couple of these. one thought that just crossed my mind tonight is that uh, several of these things I've, I've, I've got are um, by women writers who are possibly, possibly have not attained the reputations they deserve. And I started thinking about, the, the ones I'm thinking about specifically uh, are a new novel by Kathy Goonan, which is a sequel yep. uh, really fantastic. to her. And fantastic, in
0: fantastic writer, yeah. Yeah, and,
1: and she's a wonderful writer. Yeah. Uh the NAMTEC, you know, quartet, she calls it now, uh, you know, ought to be a kind of modern classic, and I don't know <laughs> the people who love it love it in the and I but I think she's a more important writer than she's generally given credit for. Yeah, uh from from your part of the world I got the uh, essentially the essential Lucy Sussex.
0: Yes, yeah.
1: Another terrific writer who shows up with some regularity in you know, excuse me. Year's best anthologies and so forth. Here, but yeah. I don't know how much of her fiction has been widely uh, distributed in the UK and the US at all, outside of anthologies.
0: I think the only thing that, uh, things of Lucy's that were published. I think she had a novel or two. I think one novel uh, come out from Tor back in the 2000s, sometime. sometime. But ago. but, but the, tr- the truth is that I mean, with Lucy, she. I mean, she's not had many novels published at all. Well, yeah. uh, and she's done an awful lot of academic work, which I think has. i I'm, and I honestly don't know whether her preference is to do academic work or uh, to be a writer. Uh, but that's certainly where, how she split her time. And a lot of the stuff she's not got done, or sort of a lot of the stuff that's not come out, is because she's uh-huh. she's been here. So, uh, and this is obviously you know an Australian publisher doing a, a best of to bring more t- attention to her work, which is I think an, an admirable thing to be doing. Uh, I hope it gets
1: and I hope I gather it is getting some distribution outside of Australia I don't title, know I don't know. Total, total, such dreadful lies mm-hmm. and what struck me about it and just looking at the table of contents um, is the number of stories in that I had read at some point or another but only in best of the year anthologies I yeah.
0: Think. yeah are you wandering around the room Gary does it sound like I'm wandering around the room it sounds like you're wandering around the room Gary
1: bottle of wine <laughs> which I now have in my hand
0: you should have consulted the seller before the beginning of the podcast, Gary.
1: I really realize <laughs> that now. I feel very self-conscious.
0: You should be—you should feel chag- somewhat chagrined.
1: I've, I've settled down in my chair now. I won't move again. I promise. Good
0: man. None of that moving around during the podcast. No good comes of it. None. Right. Anyway. Well, the, author, the third author
1: who I have the best of is Caitlin Kernan. Oh yes, yes. Probably one of the most significant literary horror writers. If she, she's also been a science fiction writer. Yep, she's. Yep, yep fascinating. She's an anthropologist, uh, archaeologist, I guess. And again, um, maybe because of the odd mix of genres that she works in, uh, has a very solid reputation, but possibly not as solid as it should be. Yeah. <clears throat> and it led me to this question, which sounds like it's raising a whole hornet's nest that I don't want to raise, is that is something this, is, is there still some degree to which even major Women writers in these genres are still marginalized. Um, and I may have been thinking about this because of being at Wiscon. Sure, yeah, but it, it may simply be the coincidence of getting books by three very good writers who I think everyone who knows them knows they're very good writers, but you send you get the sense that not enough people know them.
0: Obviously that you know this is just my observation, but first of all, yes, I think. Uh, the science fiction and fantasy field generally still tends to marginalize women, probably in the same way, and I'm, I'm not aware of it, you know, but, I'm, but I'm guessing, in the same way that they're marginalized in the rest of literature, and there have been all kinds of cases around and about the... You know, they, they pop up all the time. Once you start looking and you're, you're remotely aware of it, you, it's what you see. Um, mm. Now, In the case of these three particular writers, um, I think there are other factors at play as well, yeah, if you look at Kathy Goonan, I mean, hmm. she, she had what four major—the the the Nanotech Quartet plus another novel and a collection what? came out from tour, and she's been able to consistently come out from tour, and uh, she's been nominated for major awards, but it's never quite stuck for whatever reason, and I my guess is because she falls a little bit close to the kind of Greg Egan kind of territory where it's not the, always the most immediately accessible work. And I think that probably undercuts her chances of being widely loved. And also, I mean, she's writing really smart, savvy, cutting-edge science fiction. And the truth is, when you're writing those books, you tend to be talking to a smaller marketplace as well. So I think those... Well, that, well,
1: yeah. Uh, and it could very well be that when you're dealing with fairly complicated ideas of, of, of nanotech, which underlies really <clears throat> most of her fiction, including this new series of novels, um, that that I don't know if that readership is 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 more male oriented or is I don't know. Uh, yeah. I, I, I hate to say that I don't think it is, uh, but it's 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 one of those things when you start talking about cutting edge movements, people think t- tend to think in terms of of, of quote unquote young uh, I don't know punks yeah I that's guess. why I call them yeah. punks yeah. I mean Kathy is it's not as it's it's not as though it's a it's, it's a major overwhelmingly uh, uh, desperate situation that any of these writers are in.
0: Uh, well, I know, but I mean, I mean, if, you to say to, if you were to say to me which of them do I think is the most unfairly unappreciated, I guess is the best way I could put it, I would probably pick Caitlin Kiernan out of the three. I think Lucy is a terrific writer. There's a small part of her body of work which is absolutely essential and then the rest of it is very good um she should be more widely appreciated but i think i can i can see the reasons why she's not um Mm. i think kathy is one is the right book away from being more widely appreciated um just a somewhat more accessible book and i think she would be now caitlin 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 is actually a fantastic writer she's she actually in fairness is one of the best writers we have in the field today particularly as a short story writer even though her novel, The Red Tree, is, uh, which I've, I've got but I haven't read, is supposed to be fantastic. But I think the,
1: for the world fantasy. World, mm. yeah. And
0: the, it, stylistically,
1: she is one of the more sophisticated writers we have and crossing multiple genres and multiple that's it.
0: Yeah. modes. And I think it, it, even if you set aside the notion of prejudice and the, emotion, the, the notion of disadvantaging somebody and everything else, that in itself makes you a harder marketing target. And and I'm sure, I I seem to recall that uh, Caitlin is going to do some YA novels under another name. I think I saw that on her blog. And I think I I understand the reason for it is partly just to show there's a difference between the work, because they're going to be quite different, but also Mm -hmm. to sort of appeal to a new market. And what I would love to see, uh, though you never know with, with small press best of, is that... A book like the the the, um, night sh- the subterranean um, best of Caitlin Kiernan will give us a chance to re- re- reconsider her a little bit because I don't think she's appreciated enough as a science fiction writer. She is readily boxed as being a, a horror writer, and horror mm-hmm. itself is marginalised. I think you know we do. T- I mean, I tend to. I mean, it, just look at my own prejudices as a reader, and I can't talk to anybody else's. Just my own. When I think about horror, I kind of go, well, that's not for me. I'm not going to read it basically, and as much as anything it's because what what I associate horror with isn't, you know, classy, intelligent, well-written fiction. It tends to be splatterpunk and a whole bunch of people publishing not particularly good work in fanzines for their own friends. Now those things happen in science fiction and fantasy as well, but that's, for for some reason, that's the characterization of horror I have. So it doesn't allow for the quality of work that, you know, Caitlin Kiernan is doing. It doesn't laugh the quality of work that Laird Barron is doing or any one of a number of people. I mean, one of the best sto- stories I've read this year, actually, is a, a, nominally a horror novella, which is um, Peter Straub's story that's in conjunctions.
1: Ballard of Sand... Ballard, mm,
0: Ballard Sand Green. Which is fantastic.
1: Great novella. So, I mean, it's really a fantasy story um, or, yeah. or a metaphysical story in some ways. I think this is one part of the issue. And it's, it's, it's not a distinction... I think, entirely between horror and science fiction or between uh, uh, b- between the gender of writers.
0: Yeah. Another
1: issue is the issue of what we call literary, quote, whatever. Literary mm-hmm. horror is a phrase that, uh, that Peter Straub likes to use. He's done anthologies. He's promoted mm-hmm. it in the history of America. He has clearly recognized people like Larry Barron and Kevin sure. Kernan sure. and other writers. Um, but at the same time, the horror community, as you say, has this... Um, not very ambitious uh, component to it, um, and, and, and I think that possibly because of what happened in the seventies and because of the splatterpunk movement, and because of the movies that people associated with yeah. horror has never entirely escaped the pulp tradition as clearly as science fiction or fantasy seem to have.
0: Yeah. No, I don't think it has, and I, I, I you know, I, I don't. I don't think we can entirely blame the Participants within the horror community for this, but it does seem to be the case. I mean, there was a real flourishing, is my recollection, uh, back in the mid 1980s when Dell Abyss was launched. Mm-hmm. Um, and suddenly uh, Poppy Bright came along, Kathy Koja came along, and it looked like we were moving into this era where horror had this re- or this period where horror was taken very seriously. It was seen as really top notch frontline work. And then it just went off. I don't know whether it was because of the splatterpunk movement that came in behind it. I don't know if it's because ultimately that line closed when Gene Cavalos went on to do other things or, or what it was. But for some reason it did. And horror ever since, it's like every time you see or hear good horror in the circle that I'm in, and I'm sure you get a very different story from Alan Datlow, but in the story in the sphere that I'm in, it the good horror is the exception. Always. You know, it's like, well, you know, I don't really like horror, and it's all rubbishy splatterpunk, but I read this Laird Barron story that was really good. Mm-hmm. And if it's really good, er- I mean, this is, in fact, the marginalization, and, and I don't equate them exactly, but the marginalization of women and the marginalization mar- marginalisation of horror arguably have similar features because, you know, there's that whole thing. Well, you know, it would be better if it wasn't by a woman. You know, it, it was written by a woman, ergo, what makes it good isn't because it's by a woman. Uh, it's horror. It happens to be good, ergo, it's not really horror. What makes it good isn't because it's really horror. You know, that kind of thing. And I think that happens very much.
1: I think it happens. I mean, we're, we're of course, leading the entire issue of Paranormal Romance, which seems to have very uh, successful.
0: I got a book and in that- a mail, Gary. It made me unhappy. Oh? Yeah, I did. I don't even, don't even want to name the book because I don't really want oh. to disadvantage the publisher or anything. But what made me unhappy about it is it's an urban fantasy book. And... It, it's just my own prejudices. It's broken up into three sections, you know, paranormal romance, fantasy noir, and mythic fiction, right? Um, mythic? Yeah, mythic fiction. It's the fiction on a smack, honestly, mm. just, just come on. It just sounds failed by itself, doesn't it? And yet really, I mean, to me, urban fantasy is what Terry Windling launched in the mid-1980s and was typified by Charles Delint, Emma Bull, Ellen Kushner, uh, Pamela Dean, probably that whole—I mean, Stephen Brust—that whole kind of group of people. Um, and to me, the paranormal romance crowd aren't urban fantasy at all. You know, Jim. You know, okay. the, really, yep. I mean, they're they're just a different thing to me. Um, and so this book kind of irked me. And this is actually a, a, a separate danger. And I know I'm ripping us off topic. And I don't, maybe we, we can go back if you think we should put this off for a minute. But it is this whole thing about doing um, historical books where you talk about movements and the evolution of things, because every, first of all, everybody seems to have a slightly, there'll be a simple, a, a simplified canonical version of events, whatever it might be. And then there'll be whatever way people are trying to pull it. Right. And I look, at, I mean, now, if you talk to people, they, the, the ten, quite often there'll be a movement that'll say that stuff back then wasn't really urban fantasy. The stuff we're doing now, with um, Charlene Harris is really urban fantasy, you know, and that other stuff was something else, you know. And you're kind of going, yeah, you know. And I've had people tell me the only difference between urban fantasy and paranormal romance is that paranormal romance is about the romance and urban fantasy isn't. I'm going, yeah, I don't know about that either. And I mean, with something we bumped into when we did Steampunk, not Steampunk, when we did uh, the new space opera, uh, mm-hmm. the actual story of it is, it's something that I'm wrestling with right now with cyberpunk. The cyberpunk book has given me horrible trouble, Gary. I'm so unhappy about it. I don't like the cyberpunk book at all right now. I will when it's done, but I hate it. I'm so unhappy with that book, Gary, I considered giving the advance back. That's how unhappy I am with that book. Let's let's explore this a little bit. What what are the sources of your anxieties, Jonathan? Would you like to talk about it? Well, okay. I'm I'm unhappy with the cyberpunk book because... The narratives about the history of cyberpunk don't necessarily make a lot of sense to me. Um, The simplistic one is that sterling gibson and friends come up with you know are annoyed and uh, fed up with the fiction of the 70s so they go and they start a fresh new thing that reacts to the the basis of the street and they come up a lot and, it, and it's all about kind of being dressed in leather and having your mirror shades and you're uh exploring technology we take technology down to street level kind of a thing uh and then it's it sort of that gets laid to rest with the publication of Mirror Shades in 1986, when basically Sterling goes, well, we're done, it's dead now. But of course it's not, because it's been very popular, so everybody else picks it up and it goes on, and the stuff that posts that quite often is um, marginalized in a cyberpunk kind of dialogue, because it's seen as being, well, just taking the dressing of it, but not really the guts of the whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. But the truth is, if you go back and read Mirror Shades, there's very little of what I would honestly consider cyberpunk in that book. There is some.
1: I, I was, I looked at that a few years ago, and I was thinking this is, this is odd, but uh, but it occurred to me when I was looking at that book. I, I reread it a few years ago, I guess. Yeah. Uh, that no, this did not look like what we have come to think of as cyberpunk, but on the other hand, it did represent, especially what Sterling had in mind at a certain point in history, um, which strikes me as being something that might also have been true of the new wave. Yeah. There are. There are very few movements in science fiction that have actually taken on a life sure. that sure. have been deliberate movements that were self-labeled. We are going to do more cock and we're going to do the new wave. We are going to do cyberpunk. Yeah. And that movement and, and historically turns out to have very little to do with what later gets labeled as new wave or cyberpunk.
0: I think that's true. I mean, what I was, what I've come to sort of feel about it a little bit is that there are two separate things being conflated together. Um, Mirror Shades shouldn't be called Mirror Shades, the cyberpunk anthology. It should be called Mirror Shades, the movement anthology, because Mm -hmm. um, Sterling had a tendency to refer to the group of people that they had. There's about half a dozen people. You know, there was Sterling, Gibson, Shiner, Shirley, um, and Cadigan, you know there were the movement, not the cyberpunk movement, not cyberpunk, there were the movement. And if you go and if you look at the Mirror Shades as a movement anthology, it makes sense because mm-hmm. what it's about is about rejecting the flab and indulgence of some of the 70s fiction. I've seen somebody, get, some people get really angry about the introduction to Mirror Shades because they say that Sterling by undercutting or dismissing the fiction of the seventies dismisses an awful lot of creativity of women, the move of feminism and science fiction. And while I see mm-hmm. the argument, I think, I think it misses, it misses the context in which Sterling generally spoke. Cause I think if you go and you read Sterling generally, what you see mm-hmm. is that he, I mean, he, when, if you go and you read cheap truth, say they're very yeah. particular about the kind of fiction they're dismissing. You know, they're dismissing footfall by Larry Niven. You know, they're dismissing big, fat, self-indulgent books. That's what they're seeing as a problem with science fiction. And so they've they've called, and it's partly responding to that classic uh, Interzone editorial that called for Radical Hard SF in the early 1980s that was written mm-hmm. by Pringle and Greenland and whoever else. Um, and they've said, OK, we want to write Radical Hard SF too. And some of what they're doing is exactly that. And now it may be that, I mean, Greg Bear's Blood Music is in that book, and it may be that Greg Bear never considered himself a cyberpunk, never considered himself part of the movement, but he was doing the same thing. You know, he was creating radical hard SF for the early to mid 1980s. So to me, like, first of all, cyberpunk, from the point it's, it's coined, right, is this movement group, and part of what they do spins off into what becomes more popularly known as cyberpunk, and I mean Gibson is the obvious person who picks it up, runs with it for a little while, moves on to parts of that he's more interested in. Other people pick mm-hmm. it up. You get Walter uh, John Williams coming in with Hardwired behind it, and a whole bunch of other people. Got a lot of
1: the a, 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 a lot of the attitude, a lot of the the, the streetwise settings and that sort of thing yeah. became characteristics of a certain kind of hard-boiled science fiction, I suppose. But uh, well, the I, I, I think largely what what Sterling, I, I looked at those editorials not long ago when I was trying to figure out uh, how that related to you know, subsequent movements. Yeah, and I think you're, periodically a group of science fiction writers uh, decides that science fiction is losing sight of its roots. It's becoming commercialized. Nice. It's becoming formulaic, and to some extent they're absolutely right. Sure. By the time, but by the time Heinlein and, and, and Niven and Purnell were hitting the New York Times bestseller list, they were doing uh, epic performances of very very familiar themes. Yeah, and and not reinventing science fiction from the ground up. And I think that what uh, Sterling and that group wanted to do is they wanted to say, let's, let's, that's not write about forties culture anymore. You know, let's write about eighties culture. Yeah. And this is what this culture looks like. Yeah. Uh, and I, 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 but writers have done that consistently. We had a discussion at, uh, let me see. It was uh, the international conference in the fantastic, which is one that Jim Kelly put together. Interestingly yeah. Right. Enough. On it. it was about their post part of it was about their, their post cyberpunk anthology. And Ted Chiang became the focus of discussion, much to his own embarrassment, yeah. uh, but for a very good reason. that What Ted is doing is not part of movement, but what he sees himself as doing is very much returning to the root forms of science fiction, writing stories about how sure. science works, even if the science he makes use of is completely imaginary or completely sure. alternative to what we know of the science. Um, yeah. And I think that's, a, that, that's, that's not an unhealthy thing at all, and I think no. that happens periodically. Only yeah. once in a while does it get labeled as movement, however. Yeah. See, and that's also a very different way of labeling movement from uh, from the, the, the kind of thing you were talking about with urban fantasy, which is, or, or, or what was the third one? Mythic fiction?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, mythic, mythic, fiction fiction. Is, mythic fiction is a term Charles DeLint uses for his work because he doesn't like urban fantasy.
1: Well, and there's the Mythopaic Society Awards yeah, yeah. which recognizes a certain kind of uh, fantasy. I mean, the urban fantasy thing is, 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 is a, I don't know where that came from. I, I'd like to do, I, before there was ever such a thing, before Charles Lint. I remember thinking. Uh, I remember people talking about uh, Charles Williams as being the urban fantasist among the Inklings because he said his stories in London rather than in some, you know, uh, secondary world. Fritz ghost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so there was a, there was a lot of urban fantasy being written, uh, which seemed uh, relevant and radical. Now, now 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 what we're labeling urban fantasy. Into, Charlene Harris is in rural Louisiana, and 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 uh, sure, sure, and, and Stephanie. Uh, Myers in rural Washington why is
0: that urban I have no idea um what I was going to say was though I think that and I really you know like if I was going to be a good diligent person I'd do thousands of hours of research I don't have time to do I have this feeling as well that the Kelly Kessel book the, uh, the post cyberpunk they did book rewired uh which in many ways is a very very good book and certainly well worth reading um looks at the point where these things overlap as well because in some ways it's not post-cyberpunk at all it is cyberpunk uh and i think the key I'm trying, I'm, i've been thinking thinking this through i'm still not sure that i'm convinced myself but i, I suspect the, the key is sterling as it always has been for this stuff and the key is that sterling didn't write any cyberpunk at all pretty much during the cyberpunk period i mean if the cyberpunk period is 1981 to about 1986 or 7 Mm. He, um, I, I would defy anybody to really look at a story of his and call it cyberpunk I mean you can look at the schismatrix stuff and say that it's movement because it's certainly Radical hard SF mm. but it's not cyberpunk like, when he really starts to write cyberpunk to my way of thinking is when he starts to write stories like Bicycle Repairman where the technology has been absorbed on the street and people are mm. using it the way they want to in an urban environment and all that kind of thing it is urban science fiction, in fact. It's um, urban science fiction,
1: and it has the sensibility we were talking about. But that sensibility also, and uh, at the time, uh, Sterling and Gibson were well recognizing that part of that sensibility, minus the science, was, was very evident in Harlan Ellison stories in the 60s.
0: Oh, yes, yes. And I mean, I, I must admit as well, I've been tempted, and I'm still not sure. And it's terrible. I mean, I, I have to say, I pr- I really hope Nightshade don't listen to this podcast because um, I've got to deliver this book in the middle of August before I come to Warcon, and I'm just just treading water on it at the moment. But um, well, <laughs> which is not good. But, well, the problem uh, the problem with
1: anything that's called a movement is that um, it it sounds as though, by definition, it's over and what I think the argument between uh, the argument of Kessel and Kelly's anthology was essentially not that the movement is over and not that this is post-cyberpunk, but that cyberpunk introduced a set of techniques and sensibilities and types of characters and so forth, which are now part of the fabric of science fiction. Oh, sure, sure. I think And it, true. it's never gone away uh, in, in, in the same sense that, uh, you know, uh, well, radical hard science fiction, which, which Paul McCauley, I believe, identified himself with, has yeah. never gone away at all. Yeah. Uh, there was a moment when it looked like the new space opera looked like a movement. It's pretty clear now that it's not just a movement. It's, no. it's, yeah. it's, it's a new weapon in the arsenal of science
0: fiction. I think so. And, and the way I would probably choose to, I think, characterize cyberpunk is what it is. It's noir radical hard SF. The only problem with that is I'm really getting tired of the word noir. Well, yeah, I know, but it is a useful shorthand for dark crime-oriented fiction fiction. That's true. It's it, 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 it's useful, and uh, you know if you if you think about cyberpunk, what is it? It's science fiction. It has a hard SF edge. It is I'm articulating this for the first time. It's um, dark. It tends to be you know that gritty kind of feel to it. That uh, gritty urban city feel to it, very specifically, um, with industrial edge, and it is very it tends to be sort of the same. Very sort of straight. Very Alternate kind of thing, and that's why I mean th- those stories, and arguably even into the Deep Eddy stories that's, that that Sterling did. There, there's a real edge to it. Whereas I mean, Gibson took the whole cultural edge, and it turns out that if you look at it, his his story really isn't writing cyberpunk at all. He's wr- he was he wrote the <laughs> Neuromancer is the eighties version of pattern recognition. You know, interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I, well, I think I think it's a. An interesting reverse way of putting it because what it does is it, is it puts a different perspective on him he's not the cyberpunk mm. who stopped writing cyberpunk he's the uh contemporary social technically aware science fiction writer who ha- went from writing about uh hardware to writing about uh, uh, about uh marketing and commercial trends right you
1: know, as, he's in, 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 yeah, in extrapolating culture, but again, that is something which uh, I was looking. I was looking at the space merchants the other day. Yeah, yeah. Is is there, there's there, there are a lot of science fictional trappings to it, and a lot of Fred Pohl's short fiction is consumerist satire, sometimes absurdist consumerist satire. Some of the satire barely works as science fiction, but it can be very funny. Yeah. Uh, yet he's still associated with the hard science fiction end of the spectrum because of later novels like, you know, Gem and Man Plus. Sure, sure. Uh, which, is what I, which is what I mean when I say it's essentially a technique. I think there's also a literary history behind things like cyberpunk that, uh, that get incorporated into the fiction that was new at the time. For example, when you mention the kind of – when you mention noir, when you mention the hard-boiled uh, sensibility of it, um, you, or, or, or the morally and politically ambiguous sure. uh, characters, no longer simple heroes. Well, I think part of what's going on is that we suddenly get a generation of writers who grew up reading more than astounding. We we, we yeah. had writers who were aware of James M. Cain or Jim Thompson or Raymond Chandler. Yeah. Uh, and some of that sensibility, which had worked its way into crime fiction you know, decades earlier, is finally working its way into science fiction.
0: Yes, yes. I mean, and to some degree, it had been there anyway because, I mean, you, you can't look back to the fiction of – Bester and, and say that, that that wasn't there and that was a point that's been made all along uh, and you certainly you see that point being made by Pat Cadigan in her ultimate cyberpunk not, uh, anthology, which is a terrible title for a book, but I mean it picks up uh, Bester's Fondy Fahrenheit maybe if, if I remember correctly, it also picks up uh, Tiptree's the girl who's plugged in um, as, as, as showing that there are these precursors to what we label as cyberpunk you know, um, and arguably I mean, is Hanu Ryan Yemi cyber, cyberpunk well, yeah,
1: and, and this raises also the question, can you really say that there were no cyberpunk stories before the term? Can you really say that there were no new wave stories before the term? Of course there were.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, we, we finally found a place to sort of collect them and label them in a, a kind of common sensibility, but uh, you're, you're absolutely right about Bester or in terms of new wave stories. Who knows? Cordwainer Smith. I was uh, rereading some Avram Davidson stories the All other right. day. Uh, he's I, I, Who knows what he is, but it certainly is – if he's part of a movement, it's a movement which you've probably identified only within the last 10 years or so.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, I, I, I will be honest. I, I considered breaking the book up into three pieces. Um, basically, pre-the movement uh, and the 1980s, uh, the, you know, the evolution of, of basically a noir radical hard SF, starting mm-hmm. through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, represented by a handful of stories. Then the movement, which would in itself be the radical hard SF thing – and allow for that divergence from what we call science fiction, and then a, a section that I would actually call cyberpunk, which would start post Neuromancer, which would be that group of people who are writing fiction that was influenced by the movement and that became what we actually call cyberpunk now. I think, and I, I, I've, I've been tempted to do that, but I'm, I'm not sure I will. I'm going back and forth. I, I am officially vacillating at the moment, still. It's a fascinating question to. Uh, to grapple with, if you don't have to do an anthology, like <laughs> I don't,
1: um, because theoretically, it's uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of some of these in, in, in maybe mainstream literature. There were there were a handful in the 20s and 30s of of surrealist novels. Mm-hmm. Uh there's by Americans. There, were, uh, there, there was a Robert M. Coates novel. The the artist Yorgo De Chirico, uh wrote a novel, and they were they had very little impact in terms of fiction. But surrealism as a mode of writing. Has become fairly common since then. Mm-hmm. Uh, we recognize surrealism in writing now, but nobody necessarily worries. Well, is this part of the surrealist movement or not? Uh, it's just one of a number of techniques that have been absorbed into the, uh, you know, in in yeah. in, in, in tool books, toolbox of writing science fiction
0: yeah. or fantasy. Well, of course, this is something you and I are going to have to talk about more, Gary, because of course I commissioned to you write the, you to write the introduction because I'm a big old coward. Yeah, and I'm really really hesitating about that after this conversation <laughs> oh it's it'll it'll be fun i'm I i'm actually doing reading for for the book as we speak so and i have contracted some stories so we'll 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 do that uh and of course think this this, this sorry, what were you oh, saying well
1: i mean the thing is it's um a part of the problem i have with with any theme anthology and this is uh it certainly includes all of Kessel and Kelly's anthologies, is that some, some extent what you're doing is you're reaching out and trying to find the unexpected story and trying to broaden people's understanding of what this might have been. No, I'm not. Because doing a cyberpunk anthology, which is just, these are all the classic cyberpunk stories, and everybody knows what they are. I don't understand the point of that. It's like a textbook for somebody who's never read anything about science fiction, cyberpunk before.
0: Yeah, so, I, I take your st- point. Is, but isn't part of the point, though, hang on, sorry, isn't part of the point with this to actually codify it, and aren't those canonical works the ones used to codify it? As long as they're not the
1: only works in it.
0: Well, no, they couldn't be. There aren't that many of them, Gary, in this case. There's, there's, okay.
1: there's, there's a difference between codifying it and preserving it in amber. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah, only- so- only the classic stories suggest that it's a it's a movement which is dead and over. And these are the these these are the ones we have in the glass cases on display. And please don't touch. Um, yeah. That to me is a dead movement. And um, and if that's what cyberpunk is is a, is a movement, maybe it is dead. Well, I don't think of it as a movement. I think of it as something which is ongoing.
0: Well, um, I, I guess what I'd say is I think the movement is dead, but cyberpunk isn't.
1: Okay. I mean, one of the interesting. <laughs> When you mention radical hard SF, if you mention yeah. newspaper, you mention post-cyberpunk, the name that always comes to my mind is M. John Harrison.
0: Yep. Yeah. Uh,
1: because he's essentially been something of a pioneer in all these areas. And yet I don't think, with the exception of the new weird, which is a phrase that he came up with, I don't think he's deliberately associated himself with any movement. I no, think he he's simply the kind of fiction that, uh, that draws on all these uh, resources.
0: Though I think he's probably the greatest hard SF poet. We have he pr- is great very- when it comes down to just the sheer poetry of writing the stuff that gives you sense of wonder there's nothing like him in fact when I wrote the new space opera proposal that the book the proposal that stole that sold the book I mm-hmm. absolutely totally a hundred percent caged it all from stuff that he'd written about it because he understands well, the poetry and the romance of it so beautifully
1: absolutely he's a very very articulate critic as well as a Um, a novelist but he also writes some of the meanest least sympathetic main characters of any science fiction writer i can remember in the last 30 years oh he's not sentimental as an artist at all no uh and 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 the thing that strikes me as being remarkable about that balance is to write with that flinty toughness and at the same time convey that poetry that you're describing Mm -hmm. In, in the same narrative so that you have this Disjuncture of, of, of affect on, on the one hand. This is absolutely the kind of science. This is the kind of wonder I wanted when I started reading science fiction Yeah, on the other hand these are as far away from Heinlein heroes as you can get.
0: Yeah, they are um, And there's an aspect of it as well. I mean now that I think about it. I don't have it to hand but the quote um, that I stole for the uh, proposal for for the new space opera could just as easily have described a kind of cyberpunk, frankly, because it was street, It was rev- you know it was all that kind of edgy sort of you wander into a bar somewhere on the outer edge of the galaxy kind of a deal, and it was terrific. It was great stuff. He's, he's a just magical writer. Um, well, here's a question yeah. to think about: it, then. Could there have been a new space opera had there not been cyberpunk? Yeah. Uh, okay. The truth of it is no. Well, okay. I think that really misapprehends the history of things. Mm -hmm. I don't see the new space opera and cyberpunk as have having happened as having happened sequentially, even though we think of it that way. Mm -hmm. I think that if you accept, and I think there's a case to be made, that the the year of the interzone radical hard SF editorial was year zero um, the new space opera evolved at the same time as cyberpunk it was the British arm essentially of what happened I think that most of the new space opera was British evolved I think I've always had this theory though I cannot put it on paper for you that w- or, and you know do this research that the new space opera is Thatcherite Britain's response to radical hard Sf Cyberpunk is Reagan America's response to radical hard SF.
1: Mm, Let me give some thought to that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. But all all the stuff that's the the precursor of the new space opera and everything was happening at the same time. Go back to when the first Zeely stories were published. Wow. Uh, and that kind of you know, that when Macaulay was laying the groundwork for what he what he was doing, that happened back then too. It it, it didn't happen. It wasn't like sort of we got to the end of this, the cyberpunk period in about 1990 or 1992 or whatever, and then nice and neatly along comes new space opera. And I know you're not suggesting oh. that for a second, but that yeah. And I realize that there's then a crossover, of course, because what happens is, again, if you accept that you've got the movement happening in the American Midwest or wherever it was. I mean, Sterling was in Texas and wherever else and you've got a bunch of uh, writers in the UK, of course once they start publishing, they start cross-pollinating, and so it becomes less precise. But I I still think that's the evolution, I think. I think you're right,
1: and and I suppose it was uh, disingenuous to to ask that question in a chronological sense, because in a sense sense you said what I would have said, which is that the sensibility that informed cyberpunk also informed that, and without that sensibility you might not have had either. Mm. And Still, would argue that that sensibility comes from a wide variety of cultural and political awareness that moved outside the science fiction field. And I think this is one of the healthy things. It's healthy when it happens in science fiction or fantasy or horror. When you do get, you, you do get a group of writers who have who have read more widely than the canonical, uh, of, mm. you know, history, science fiction. Um, when you because there was a generation of writers who mostly grew up reading and writing in response to astounding, and to some mm-hmm. extent, galaxy. And, and, but basically, science fiction in the 40s was kind of the core thing you responded to. Mm-hmm. I think that began to change, really, with Bester, and it changed individually with various writers over the next 30 or 40 years. Um, but there are times when it becomes very noticeable that there are writers who have been reading seriously Kafka, for example. I sure. think that Kessel and Kelly's next anthology is a, is a Kafka. It is movie. indeed, yeah. Uh, so, so that, I think, is only a healthy movement when the, the, history of, the history of science fiction suddenly explodes backwards. Suddenly it's not simply the history of, of, of John W. Campbell in the 1940s, but it's the history of everything going back to Heart of Darkness, as we talked about in an yeah, earlier yeah. podcast, or possibly uh, Farewell, My Lovely, or possibly The Postman Always Rings Twice. Today's writers, I think, are aware of things like that. I mean, Peter Straub is very fond of Henry James, and mm-hmm. Silverberg is very fond of, uh, uh, as we could tell, Conrad. Mm-hmm. Benford is very fond of Faulkner. I love that, actually. I love it when you see echoes in science fiction that come from outside of science fiction.
0: Well, I mean, it, it should be. I mean, I, I remember talking to you know, Charles, sorry, Charles Brown about what made a couple of you know, writers around the place as good as they, they were. Um, And I think one of the examples was Fred Pohl, and it was that being engaged with the rest of the world, that it wasn't sort of – that. what you want to do is you don't want to write inside science fiction solely aware of the dialogue of the field. What you want to do is you want to be going out and sort of killing other ideas and bringing them back to the camp and sharing them with your – your your cohort, so that they enrich and broaden the field. And maybe some of the frustration we occasionally see these days, and there's been lots of sort of, I mean, now the modern science fiction field is so much in in its pockets all the time. We're we're tweeting and we're whatever else at each other, so we're far too aware of each other's contemporary views probably. And um, you, you see that kind of frustration at the success with modern work uh, you know, I you know, I almost feel like that, You know, there's that call for a new radical hard SF editorial to be written somewhere, calling for a new radical hard SF to overwhelm the, the bloat of the modern field. Though I'm not sure there's that much bloat. Um, I, I think what we're seeing differently now,
1: or we're seeing a we're we're seeing some calls calls to arms like that coming not entirely from within the science fiction community, but from more or less within the mainstream community. Mm-hmm. We have. Uh, Michael Chabon's famous editorial in the introduction to the first McSweeney's Treasury of uh, of how uh, genre fiction is the last refuge of the plot um, <laughs> yeah. and how this needs to be brought back into the mainstream. Uh, you have uh, Lev Grossman at Time Magazine very openly advocating that uh, uh, that writers like Paolo Bacigalupi ought to be included with all the other literary writers that are in uh, Year's Best anthologies True. or Year's Best list and so forth mm-hmm. and so on. So to some extent, uh, you could even make an argument. To some extent, science fiction doesn't need to reinvent itself because other people are out there reinventing it every day. Um, mm, mm. The Charles Yu novel is a good example of that, I think. Yeah, very much, very much. so. Well, science fictional universe. It's which is a very telling title when you think about it. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a title which essentially says, um, you know, science fiction has to find the world you're in, whether you like it or not.
0: Yes. Yeah. I think it does say that. One of the reasons that I touched on movements and genres, because when we talked about what I alluded to to ideas that we could talk about today, because we weren't really sure, because as always, making it up as you go along, was I read the best anthology I've read all year this week. Excellent. In fact, I will go further, Gary. I think I read the best original fiction anthology I will read all year this week. I read Gavin Grant and Kelly Link's young adult anthology, Steampunk, an anthology of fantastically rich and strange stories, which will be published by Candlewick this coming October. It's a 12-story and Mm two-comic anthology, and it is absolutely terrific. I mean, it's really, really good. Um, It didn't tell me anything at all about Steampunk, though. I don't, I don't feel, really I mean, I, I don't feel I, like I know anything more about steampunk than I did before. I don't know that I still know what steampunk is in, in truth.
1: Well, I would die because I would have two reactions. I mean, I knew the book was coming out. I didn't yeah. know it was in October. I have a great deal of confidence in, in, in Gavin and Kelly and what they put together. Their tastes are very interesting. They're, uh, very eclectic and they have very good sense for really good writing mm-hmm. as they have over the years. Um, the title steampunk, I would have yawned at that. I mean, I yawn yeah. at the title steampunk, but then it's candlewick. I mean, it's it's steampunk is something you can sell to people these days. And one of the reasons you can sell steampunk to people these days is because nobody really knows what it is. I mean, you see glib definitions. This is um, science fiction as it might have been written in the 19th century, or this is 19th century technology with some variations and so forth. and So on. every time you come up with a definition, you find some – more or less steampunk classic. Of course. But doesn't quite use that definition.
0: I actually sort of hope that uh, someone like, I mean, Jeff Vandermeer has all kinds of really high profile review pl- gigs around the place. And mm-hmm. I would love to see him review this book because he has devoted a lot of time and thought to what steampunk is. I mean, he's, he's edited the Steampunk Bible, uh, two, three other steampunk anthologies or something. So he's. He, I think he and Anne would have a very clear idea in their minds of what they think steampunk is and isn't. I mean, that's. I imagine they would having done that. Certainly their books reflect that, so I, I would imagine they would. What struck me going through this was, if I had an idea of steampunk in my mind, and I tend to conflate... Powers and Blaylock as steampunk, I guess, in my mind, more than else. Oh, yeah. Far more than the Gibson-Sterling novel, um, The Difference Engine, which, between you and I, bored me stupid. I uh, didn't actually, well,
1: I should be honest, I didn't finish it.
0: I, I didn't. didn't either. Boring. Okay. It was boring uh, to me. So, I mean, I'm not, I, I like Gibson and Blaylock, oh, so Blaylock and Sterling, oh, oh, God, Blaylock and Powers, and don't didn't really like the Gibson-Sterling book, which I thought I would love. I should probably retry, in fairness, after all these years. But this is terrific. It opens with a good Cassie Clare story. The Libba Bray story, The Last Ride of the Glory Girls, is one of the best novelettes of the year, easily. Really? It's a fantastic story. It's a huge amount of fun. It's about a batch of a group of time-travelling, train-robbing cowgirls. Oh, sounds like fun. And it is. It's enormous fun. Um, and is terribly well told. Corey Doctorow chips in with one of his best stories of the last few years, a story called Clockwork Fagin, which is exactly what it sounds like it is.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Um, Kelly Link features with a major story called The Summer People which is also one of her best stories in some, some time, uh, I, I have this urge, which I, I'm probably not going to have the time to indulge, to go back and reread her entire body of work, which only amounts to 30-some stories. Because... I guess... hmm? Sorry?
1: Go ahead. No, no it, it's, it well, okay. surprises me that, are that few, but they are right.
0: I would say there's probably 32 or 33 stories. Uh, there is another one due up in the next few weeks, I guess, at Subterranean as part of their young adult issue. But uh, called the, was it The the Valley of the Dolls, I think it's called? Uh, but for this one, The Summer People, is very, very – I don't even want to tell you what it's about. It's just really, really good, and it's well worth reading. Uh, but I'm curious to go back and reread her body of work to see where she adopted linear plots, because I think that's a key change in her work. Yes,
1: it is. Yeah,
0: you know, somewhere after um, Strange Things Happen was published – and I always think of the stories of Shoes and Marriage, which was up for the World Fantasy Award the year that I was a judge, mm-hmm. um, which is an entirely non-linear kind of a story to me. Um, and then you move on to the stuff that begins to feel like rehearsing how to write novels. Um, and and The Summer People, I think, gets the linear narrative thing probably as right as she's ever gotten it. So. Oh, that's why
1: You can see, you can see her working toward that. And I'm, I'm blanking on the title of that one yeah. science fiction story that took place in. Oh, let me see. It dealt with aliens and took place mm. largely in America. Yeah. What's that?
0: Oh, the one, he, uh, the one she did for me. The one she did for, yeah. for the Starry Rift. Why have I forgotten the title of that story? I don't even have it here. Ah, oh, what was it? I know the one with it's, soccer and yeah, and the exactly. In the uh, the South oh, Anyway, yes, that
1: story. It, it, it was it, that was the first one that struck me as being having. As having clearly linear plotting. Yeah. yeah. Um,
0: and, and a kind
1: of uh, sort of t- sense of familiarity about it. But you mentioned something about the steampunk anthology that I had not thought about when you mentioned how much fun the stories were. Mm. That probably is the one thing I would expect from steampunk. I would expect yeah. to have fun with a story like that. Yeah. I don't know if I want to see grim steampunk noir. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed a lot of the stories that uh, Eileen Dunn and Michael Swanwick have been
0: doing. Together. Yes, this book and they're clearly having enormous yes. amounts of fun. This book confronts dark issues but is not bleak. You know, mm-hmm. Chris, Christopher Rowe delivers the story that you'd hope he would have followed *The Voluntary State* up with. Oh, wonderful! A story called Nowhere Fast*, um, and uh, Tobin Anderson, your yeah, MT Anderson, has a fantastic uh, Roman punk kind of a story actually. Mm. And the surprise of the book, I mean, a book. uh, there's a guy I'd never heard of this writer before in my life. Uh, There's a New Zealand-based comics artist, a guy called Dylan Horrocks, who's written – Me either. Never heard of him. And, oh, my God, he must write for me all the time from now on. He's written this novelette called Steam Girl, and it's about a strange, odd young girl who shows up at a school and befriends a nerd there. And how she starts telling him the stories of the adventures of Steam Girl, and she's got this all this written out, kind of really kind of rich, vivid, uh, almost Burrowsian kind of world invented for this girl, or she has. And then it becomes a question of identity and what's real and what isn't. It's fantastic stuff. It's great. You know, if mm-hmm. I had, if if I could send it to you, I'd send it to you now, um, which I can't. Uh, unfortunately, because it was a, oh, a, a stupid exactly. net galley arc I can't share, stupid net galley but, yeah, but a this, uh, One other question
1: quick, yeah. quickly about the, the, the uh, Kelly Link story, the title is The Summer People Yes oh, I wonder if that's, an, because one of the most ominous of Shirley Jackson's stories is called The Summer People
0: Then I'm sure it's a, 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 an homage or a connection or whatever, I'm sure yeah. it is Some kind of
1: effect Because I, Kelly would not, I don't think, imitates, but 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 the feeling of that Shirley Jackson story is very distinctive and in some ways very Kelly-like. Um,
0: I will have to go. I, I assume it's in the Library of America Shirley Jackson collection. I hope it is. <laughs> I shall go and have, one, have to, a look. I have a copy no somewhere as well. Um, in fact, it's probably right there. Actually. If I were to get up and walk around the way you did when you were getting your bottle of wine, Gary, I could go and check. But I actually think I put it in the main collection in the other room. So. Oh, okay. That That's, doesn't I'm, matter. I shall have, I sim- shall look for it, though. It simply deals with summer
1: people. People who The summer people are people who live at a New England resort in the summer. And places like Mount Desert Island in Maine are familiar with the huge population increase over the summer. Mm. And. Um, some of the summer people, a, a family, or a couple, I, I can't remember if it's a couple or a family, decide they're going to stay on. Yep. And, it, it, and that's basically the situation of the story. But like Shirley Jackson does so well, she begins to make it really clear that this is not a good idea yep. without being very explicit about it.
0: I, I will say the thing that surprised me, I, I, I think I hold anthologists to different standards than some of the people that I read reviews by. Mm -hmm. Or not different standards, different criteria, I think, because I was never disappointed by the fact that I didn't think steampunk was particularly steampunk at times. Uh, I was so delighted that it was a rewarding book to read that I didn't care, you know. Mm. Uh, And I think that's more my feeling about this. It's even my feeling about the cyberpunk book to some degree. Yes, I want to get the history of it down there, but I'm far more interested in getting a book that's worth reading together. Um. I think we get worry too much about this um, taxonomy. I'm well, not-
1: when I see when I see an anthology which has a label, which again, this is this is between this is this is involved with packaging and marketing and oh, yeah. demographics and audience and that sort of thing. So you realize that. Uh, but if I were to see uh, an anthology with any title, whether it's urban fantasy or cyberpunk or steampunk or new weird or new wave. Uh, if all I'm seeing is a is a tombstone for that movement, it's not going to be very interesting. No. Uh, what it, what, it, what it seems to be, what I would hope to see is, are stories that are in dialogue with whatever vague set of ideas was once thought to have defined that movement. Mm,
0: mm, yeah. Yeah. So that's that's all interesting. We're, we're getting towards the end of our podcast, and believe okay. it or not, we, can you believe we've been going for nearly an hour? Not really it's not bad. This was okay. I like this one. One glass of wine. We can't possibly have been doing it for a long <laughs> Maybe we're actually engaged by the conversation. You know, I noticed something weird yesterday, Gary. I'm going to share it with you now. It's interesting. No one's commented on it, to my knowledge. Nightshade are publishing a hell of a lot of first novels. Yes, they are. And I don't mean this as a, gosh, I'm published by Nightshade. Look at my uh, clever publisher thing. But just that it's a, an interesting thing in and of itself. I mean, Locus usually turns up about a dozen recommendable first novels every year, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Nightshade are publishing 14.
1: I know they're doing a lot. I knew it was something that's, their, their, their list is very heavily weighted toward that. It's a very risky thing to do. I admire them for doing it. The couple that I know of, the Steena-like novel and uh, the Will McIntyre novel,
0: are both very good. I'm okay. very good Well, uh, one of them's already been quite commercially successful, which is the uh, Agatha Hetrodine novel from the Folios. Mm-hmm. But you're right, the Steiner-like novel has actually been really well-reviewed around the the traps. This is of Blood and Honey, which is her Celtic um, novel that's set during the Troubles in Ireland.
1: Troubles in Ireland, yeah, which, which are very convincingly portrayed.
0: I just had Neil Harrison, I think it was. I think it was Neil, and if I'm wrong, I apologize. Uh, it may have been one of the other... The, the chap who's in touch with the Clark Awards or something, but anyway, uh, talking very, fo- very uh, positively about Cameron Hurley's novel, God's War, which is a science fiction slash, yeah. no- it's a biopunk novel. And saying really good things about that. Uh, you reviewed uh, Will McIntosh's novel, Soft Apocalypse, very strongly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a handful of books coming up which are also Uh, are supposed to be quite interesting. And uh, actually, I I really should tap uh, them on the shoulder and get them to make sure they've sent them them all to Locus. But I think it's an interesting strategy, first of all, to build a publishing company, but it's also a good thing for the field. I mean, it cannot be a bad thing at all to have a year where someone puts 14 new novelists on the table. And certainly of the first, I mean, I think what six of them have been published so far and three of them have had a very positive, strong, uh, positive response. That's got to be a good thing. For the well, of the not,
1: field. they're doing this with novelists who don't have long track records in short fiction yeah. um, it was uh, I mean I, I, I've talked to Betty Valentine about in the early 50s in Valentine books they yeah. they were looking for first novels they were aggressively going after first novels yeah. most and, and their main advisor on this was Fred Pohl, but uh, and Fred knew who had a reputation in the magazines there was sure. always a kind of training ground and, and and now you're getting a lot of first novelists who uh, we don't know much about, uh, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes our first encounter with any of the fiction is in first novels. I think one of the things that benefits that, that comes from that is that you can have um, kind of harbingers of new kinds of fiction. The reason I like the Will McIntyre novel, the title, the title "Soft Apocalypse," is yeah. that he dealt with a, uh, a a kind of trend in apocalyptic fiction, which is not he's not he's not the first one. He was certainly the first one to title a novel this. Yeah, I should say phrase "Slow Apocalypse." but simply the notion that apocalyptic literature doesn't need a cataclysm. It doesn't need a nuclear war. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. need a meteor strike. The econ- it, all it needs is a recession that goes on and on and on and on. Um, and it becomes very believable when you look at it that way because yeah. it, it makes us rethink the fact that our civilization can disintegrate um, entirely on its own terms without any help. <laughs> well,
0: yeah. so, so anyway, j- just out of interest, I mean, I know we've got Paul Whitcover is going to review um, – God's war for us. So I'm looking right. forward to what he has to say about it. But I'm, I'm, I've started reading the book myself, and it does start out really well. I mean, I confess I've set it aside because I just got the Cold Commands in the mail, um, mm-hmm. but I will go back to it and pick it up. It does look really good. So yeah, and we the, do have, we'll have
1: to do this uh, soon again. But we do have a lot of interesting uh, book, collections and novels coming out uh, this summer and early fall. Well, well, Gary,
0: what are you going to be reading in the next week or so before you send me your column that's due in nine days' time? In nine days' time?
1: Well, uh, that, okay. you got <laughs> short
0: books. Where are the short books? I can tell already. That's the short book
1: panic voice, isn't it? It's, it's, it's totally the short book panic voice. Well, the, the, the Kathy Goonan thing is, 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 is yep. essentially uh, Jeff Ryman collection of short stories. Brilliant. Uh, very exciting. Uh, what else have I got? I hope to be able to get to one of these large anthologies of either lucy sussex or caitlin i don't think the caitlin Kernan thing is due until um until fall but but there are also things that are ongoing that i think people should be aware of i mean subterranean mm-hmm. is doing the collecting stories of robert silverberg yep. and volume six of that is out
0: is it out? i have to buy one of them damn me, oh
1: i guess okay let me look at it here. I've
0: got it over there and it's
1: due in volume six is due in september uh, so it is a fall book. Maybe but my point. Is, well, my point is there are five volumes out already. This is one of the major careers in the entire history of science fiction being made available to us yes. in multiple volumes right now. Yes. Uh, and that it's something that. It, because of. This this happened with the Sturgeon series as well. When you have a, a, a series of uh, very, very significant stories parceled out over a period of time, I don't think the Sturgeon series handled it as well as it might have because. No. Sticking to, sticking to chronology means you have a lot of very minor stories in the first couple of volumes.
0: Uh, I, don't, well, I don't think that would have been a problem if they'd launched put, put the whole set out at once.
1: Well, that probably is true.
0: But yeah. to run it across 13 years, that's the other thing. I mean, yes. The Silverberg series is coming out much faster than that.
1: It's coming out much faster than that. And it's, um, to be honest, in some ways a much more interesting career. Yeah, Silverberg, to me, has one of the most interesting careers in the entire history of the field. Yeah. And certainly one of the most professional writers the field has ever produced. So he's never produced. uh, Even he would probably disagree with us. He's never produced a bad story for what it was at the time he was selling
0: it. (laughs) I'm sure that's true. I have an enormous respect and affection for Bob's work. I think he's fantastic. So, yes. Well, what am I going to I mean? uh, What have I got to read? I'm I'm reading The Cold Commands by Richard K. Morgan at the moment having read The Steel Remains last year and really, really, really liked it. uh, I'm still hoping for the Neil Stevenson to show up. Uh, Mm I'm looking at the, um, uh, the Cameron Hurley book as well because I feel like, I mean, I don't really have time to read any of these novels. I should be reading short fiction. It's really, really bad of me. But I also feel like I have this need to kind of just refresh my, my familiarity with this year's novels because I want to be able to look at some of the my fellow commentators in the field and call bullshit more effectively and to do that I have to read more more widely again so that I can do that because there are things being said and I'm not going to get into what they are around the place and I don't entirely agree with them at all but I feel like I, uh, until I'm I've refreshed my research I can't really yeah confront their arguments right. so you know As and you mentioned,
1: yes uh, just as one other thing that I'm looking forward to reading, and I don't know if it's realistic to review at this point, but because we don't see these in the States, but I have got a couple of, I have received, uh, um, our friend, Elisa's sprawl anthology, which looks wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I don't, if if, 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 and thank you very much for sending it, Elisa. I don't know if I could have seen this otherwise. Um, and, uh, so I'm looking at some of the 12th planet books. I've only seen yeah. one or two 12th planet books before now. Yeah. And, they're very attractive, very distinctive looking books um, yeah. and one of the things that worries me about uh well this comes up again it, it came up when we were talking about the Marsh and various awards is how many how many significant Australian writers and publishers we simply don't see in the states
0: there'll be a number i mean you you try to get them, but you can't keep track of everything alas, but yes uh, and I, but I also think that's less true i mean if you if you can be sitting there with Elisa's books in your office. Then the world is a smaller place because when I started reading Locus in 1985, you would not have seen those books at all. You would never have heard they existed. Mm -hmm. And the truth is Locus did review Sprawl and the Locus has reviewed Love and Roman Punk. So um, we are by no means unaware of these things. And I think. Yeah, you know, just as you I mean, you're going to do the the Lucy Sussex book, and uh, there's a handful of others. So I mean, we're, we're we're more on top of these things than we've ever been before. Though I think we still have you know a, a ways to go. Um, and we will. And one last thing, and then I'll round this off. Happy days, mm-hmm. Gary. We know when we're going to see each other again, don't we? Actually, we're going to be at Reno.
1: We will. I don't know what you. We we're should, gonna we should talk about it. Yeah, we'll be doing podcasting from Reno. Yep. I hope I'll be, I'll be going to the Horror Writers of America next weekend, I yep. guess. And, and that's where we we'll, might
0: see Kate Kiernan, right? Uh,
1: I, I hope Kate, Caitlin Kiernan will be there. Yep. I know David Morrell and, uh, and Douglas Clegg and some other writers, <laughs> And, of course, Peter Straub will be there. I, and the week after that, I'll be at the Locust Awards. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just learned I'm sharing a couple of sessions. And we'll have some good friends there as well, like Nancy Brilliant. Kress and Katie Willis. And we'll see who we can talk to there.
0: And then I'll see you on the afternoon of Sunday, August the 14th. Which is getting probably closer than it should be. Considering oh, the- oh, yes, I know. Uh, and of course, we've already got our advance warning schedules from WorldCon for the, for our program commitments. So it's all going to be very real. Um, I don't know. To I, I know we'll podcast at Reno, but I don't know if we'll podcast from Reno. If that makes sense. Yes. We'll have to see. I, I think we were going to have to make a point of recording a couple of podcasts for the to have in the can for when we're all in transit and or drinking too much to care.
1: That's probably a good idea. <laughs> but the same thing is true with the Locus Awards when I'm there in a couple of weeks that yeah. uh, we might just see, see who's there. I mean, one of the things when we – people should understand when we get guests on these podcasts, they're as st- – as stunned and unprepared as we tend to be, it's it's mm. we were very lucky to get people as articulate as Ellen and Eileen and Jeff, um, but uh, but but they they they're willing to talk the way we talk rather than to simply be interviewed, and I think that's what's utterly charming about our guests. So I want to put well, a I, nice yes. to all the people who've been guests on this podcast.
0: Well, well actually, yes, I, I would pro- probably a good point to close for this week on because we'll be back next week live from somewhere. It may just Somewhere. be you and I, it may be you and I and friends, I don't know. But um, we really should thank everybody we've had out on over the last sort of month or so, uh, Eileen, Ellen, Karen, Jeff, um, just for sort of being terrific and being willing to sort of chat with us. And there will be more guests and there will also be, I think we'll always keep a healthy balance with this, with just you and I. I think at one point off, off, podcast we said you know no more than maybe two a month with guests and i think that's probably about right so something yeah that. okay anyway on that happy note i know you have a bottle of wine sitting there on the table with your name on it and I I mean, a
1: pile of- to read within nine days thank you for reminding me
0: <laughs> that's okay i've basically got to do the inside entire cyberpunk book in the next eight weeks so ha <laughs> ha it'll all be good it's gonna be great it'll be awesome i'll talk to you next week, we'll talk next week it's good talking to you Okay, good night. Bye-bye. Okay,